0: Hello and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we will be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the August 30th edition of Macro Minutes, entitled The Bears Are Back in Town. Despite a hawkish Powell being expected at Jackson Hole, we have seen yields push appreciably higher in recent days. Curves are more mixed, however, and recent ECB speak has been leaning towards a 75 basis point hike at next week's meeting. To provide some insights on this landscape, we have a full lineup of RBC experts. Peter will discuss energy price increases and the forthcoming implications for the economy and markets in Europe. Blake will give a full wrap up of Jackson Hole, and I will look ahead to the BOC September 7th meeting. Michael will discuss cross currents in the oil market and how policy and fundamentals are shaping the outlook. And finally, Elsa will provide the latest in FX space. So over to Peter. Thank you Simon. So what I'll
2: try to do um, is I'll obviously take a European lens um, and I want to speak first of all about the economy a bit and about the recent increases that we've seen in natural gas prices and particularly in power prices and the implication on the economy and then secondly feed it into the bond market and uh, speak also particularly about the ECB meeting that's upcoming next week. So, first of all, what we have seen over the last couple of weeks is a fairly significant increase um, again in gas prices um, as well as in power prices. So um, over the last month or so, we've seen about a um, uh, uh, about 250% increase in power prices in particular. And um, yes, of course, power makes up only a small percentage of the consumer basket, but given the increases that we've seen um, in, on the continent of Europe in particular, this is going to be meaningful. Um, at the same time, we've also seen gas prices um, accelerate once again, um, and we've had that debate before. um, uh, That's obviously going to be a negative for the European economy because we are net importers. Now, I want to draw out a point that I made on a previous call, um, but given the development I just outlined is very pertinent. Um, In our view, there is a significant distinction between the current situation where both gas and power is readily available, although at very elevated prices, what this situation is likely going to do is it's going to eat fairly significantly into disposable income of consumers um, and drive the economy lower because consumption for um, non-energy related products will have to suffer. Um, This is essentially our base case scenario. That's what we have priced in. And for the euro area in particular, we have Q4 and Q1 this year and next year, respectively, uh, at negative um, quarter-on-quarter growth rates. Now, um, given where power uh, prices have gone and and energy prices more uh, generally have gone, the risk is probably still to the downside. But this should... be a situation that is, um, on the one hand, manageable, um, and on the second, um, uh, on on the other hand, um, is also one that one can recover from relatively um, smoothly, I would say, once we go into the next spring and summer, when energy consumption eases again. Now, having said that, the risk remains that we get into a situation where rationing where would have to come in as the availability at any price is simply not guaranteed or not sufficient. Now, this is a downside risk. It's not our base case. It's a tail risk. Uh, but this could potentially lead to GDP drops that are much larger um, and would be more reminiscent of the um, uh, of the pandemic where essentially companies, plants, um, or entire industries would have to either partially or entirely shut down. Um, And uh, again, this is not our base case, but it's clearly something that uh, we keep on our radar screens and would preview accordingly if we change our mind on this. Now... Against that backdrop of a weakening growth outlook, nevertheless, what we've seen is that central banks um, around the globe and particularly also in uh, Europe have uh, increased their hawkish rhetoric because obviously this is also inflationary and uh, without stealing Blake's thunder um, following the um, relatively hawkish comments that we've seen from Powell, um, quite a lot of ECB speakers sort of chimed in and have demanded some of them have demanded a 75 basis point rate hike um, at next week's meeting. Now, we think uh, that's a little bit um, premature to speak of 75 basis points. Uh, we, th- we think that they will go 50 again. In fact, we have, have canceled that in for a while, and we have canceled in another 50 basis point to come in the October meeting. Um, but because they have to weigh sort of the weakness of growth on the one hand and higher inflation levels on the other hand. Um, and uh, we think that this path will probably suit them well. Having said all that, however, what the market has clearly done over the last two weeks is it has pushed um, implied front-end rates higher once again. That's particularly true for the UK, um, where the data that came out was relatively strong. Um, and also in the euro area and we think that generally speaking um, in this environment it is very difficult to go against the grain of a market that wants to push um, central bank rates higher and where the central banks have remained on a hawkish war path with inflation for the time being. So therefore we think this is an environment where we can see European yields being shifted higher as just one example our year end target for 10 year bonds is 180 which compares to 145 uh, with the current rate um, and uh, we, we there would think that uh, selling into optics is still the preferred strategy. Um, with that, I'll probably let it go. Um, but uh, clearly, the message from Europe is um, that uh, the inflation picture is not yet tamed. Thank you.
1: Thanks for those insights, Peter. Now we'll shift to Blake for takeaways from Jackson Hole.
0: Yeah, hey guys. Um, Thanks. So first, I guess, um, yeah,
1: wrapping up on Jackson Hole, I mean in
0: isolation, um, you know, in and of itself, the speech was definitely hawkish in that, um, you know, Powell was kind of very clear and succinct in his commitments to to continuing to raise rates further um, and and noting the view that uh, both some economic pain will be necessary and tolerated and also that he expects rates will be held in restrictive territory for some time. Um, but. You know, whereas that might have been, I think, in isolation hawkish if it's measured against what we already knew kind of coming into the event and some of the hawkish expectations of the market, I actually thought it was fairly neutral and was really more just a distillation uh of themes that we've already been hearing from from both Powell and other Fed speakers for uh, uh the past several weeks. Indeed the um you know, the reaction in rates was initially um you know, relatively modest if you look at kind of what's priced in for the Fed over the next year or so, um even out further the curve. We had a, a relatively modest moves. I think um, looking across the things like equity markets is where you really see uh, more of that kind of hawkish, hawkish interpretation coming out of the meeting. Um but as I said, am you know, nothing I heard um Pal say in that speech uh really kind of shifted my view on the next few meetings. And in fact PAL was actually very clear to maintain optionality there, um, you know, pulling back from any type of commitment on fifty or seventy five the next meeting. Um and, and even out on the longer run past, um, you know, nothing there kind of shifted my view. Uh, I still think you know, one to two cuts being priced to late twenty twenty three seems reasonable um you know that's not because i doubt the fed's conviction and what they they've all been saying right now or or doubt uh, Powell saying that you know re- rates would re- uh, remain in restrictive territory some time it's really that um you know they they're going to be data dependent and when the time comes you know if the economy's looking soft in late 2023 they will respond accordingly they're not going to um you know hold rates artificially high to abide by some you know vague forward guidance they provided a, a year prior so um you know part of our uh uh um, you know, part of our view on further out the curve and some of those cuts being priced in is not, again, that we think that the, the Fed is just all, the, all of a sudden going to become dovish. It's really more about the data that's getting fed into that reaction function when that time comes. Um, as for September, we still think they step down to basis points, um, but think markets are essentially going to keep it as a toss-up between 50 and 75 into the meeting, um, and that's part and parcel of uh, you know the Fed really deliberately kind of backing away from this kind of meeting-to-meeting forward guidance at the last FOMC meeting. Um not only that, but you know, the, I think the data during the blackout, most importantly, the July CPI, um or I'm sorry, August CPI, very likely to, to serve as a decider um and you know the Fed really wants to take a look at that um, you know, and, and have that optionality open if the data leans one way or the other. Um so right now we see fifty. Um again, we would also like to look at that data coming, you know, perhaps uh that 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 we see something there that pushes us more into the seventy five camp, but for now, basis fifty. What I will say, pulling back from that discussion though, is that we care a little bit less, I think, about whether it's 50 or 75 at this point, because we're kind of moving out of this period of of very heavy front loading. Um, I think in Q3 and Q4 of this year and into 2023, it's going to be more about how long they keep delivering 25s than the size of each individual hike. So for the first half of the year, I think you know everybody was very very focused on you know how big is each individual hike going to be. Now it's really about how long are they going to continue. Uh, uh, to do these kind of more modest uh, hikes? How far are they going to take it in restrictive territory? So whether or not they go 50-75 at the next meeting, um, you know the, that that's e- either way still leaves open this path where they could keep delivering 25 as well into next year. And, and that's really the more important part that I think markets should be focused on. Um, lastly, I just wanted to real briefly touch on QT because there have been a lot of questions coming in. The Fed officially steps up the caps to full pace um, this month. Um, well, not this month yet, but uh, in September. Um, so we've been getting a lot of, of kind of client questions coming in about that. Um, I want to stress that this really has no real impact. Um, you know, this, this date has long been known. Um, you know, we knew how this mechanism was going to work for for months now. Um, on the Treasury side, um, you know, the way that QT really matters is that um, it changes the amount the Treasury has to fund in private markets. But Treasury knew this was coming as well. They you know, they, they met back in August, had their August refunding announcement. They already knew that this step up was going to happen, and they factored this into their issuance plans. Um, and we already know what those issuance plans are for the next quarter. So whether or not, um, I shouldn't say whether or not, but the, the start, you know, the official start of these, these higher caps um, have already been accounted for in, in the issuance pace. So this really shouldn't be something that um, you know, has a major market-moving impact. Even on the MBS side, um, you know, the, sharp right, uh, the, the sharp rise in mortgage rates that um, you know, we've seen over the past months have really slowed prepayments on the Fed's portfolio. So even there, they're very unlikely to hit these new larger caps, so very little impact on that side. Um, and lastly, as far as reserves, um, you know, we're still in a position of massive liquidity overhang. We don't see any real signs of funding market pressure starting to bubble up. So you know, the faster decline in reserves that comes along with these larger caps is still something that I think is going to be you know, months and months before we really see it starting to, to bite in markets. Um, so I just wanted to kind of you know, make that note because I think this has drawn a lot of attention. It's, it showed up in the media in some pretty prominent headlines and wanted to address that this official uh, kind of step up in the caps of qt doesn't really have any kind of near term uh, major impacts. Uh, and with that, I think I'll pass it over to Simon.
1: Very useful, Blake. Thank you. Uh, now I'll discuss what to expect from the BOC next week. Uh, market participants have for some time looked towards the September 7th meeting with three legitimate policy options. So. 50 basis points, 75, or 100 are all on the table. After the bank retained flexibility at the July meeting, the 100 basis point hike at that meeting saw them hit the midpoint of their 2 to 3% neutral range. Our clear base case next week is that they hike by 75 basis points, which would take the overnight target just into restrictive territory at 3.25%. Market pricing has leaned towards 50 and 75 basis points at different times since July meeting, with more recent levels showing a 75-basis-point hike almost fully priced. Our risk lean from 75 is definitely towards a 100-basis-point hike, given a still-concerning situation for an inflation-targeting central bank and a strong desire to ensure they reach the 2% target over the medium term, so err on the side of too much rather than not enough tightening. Developments since the July meeting have not provided a strong skew in either direction. Inflation... Uh, front headline CPI moved down to 7.6% in July, uh, but that was due to lower gas prices while CPI common spiked and core measures are generally elevated around the 5 to 5.5% range. Uh, for the labor market, back to back declines in in the main jobs report look a bit suspect that they've been maybe due to sampling and the unemployment rate remains historically very low at 4.9%. The Seth payrolls report last week, so the secondary Uh, Jobs report showed a huge 115 k increase in June, and wage measures more broadly remain elevated around 5% year-on-year. Looking at the product market, so GDP, um, Q2 GDP actually released on August 31st, is tracking roughly in line with the July NPR, slightly above, so 4.5% versus 4% annualized, uh, with growth momentum slowing to close the quarter and into Q3. Uh, indeed, the strong headline number reflects the first fully open quarter after Omicron restrictions were in place early in Q1, and we do expect growth to slow in, in the second half of the year with the timing and follow-through from weaker housing to consumption, something to per- watch particularly closely. Uh, looking beyond September meeting, we expect a final 25 basis point hike at the October meeting and NPR uh, and a terminal rate of 350. The risk you clearly higher with 375 or 4% more likely than 325% given continued inflation risks from elevated core inflation and wages, and also, only the earliest hint of a decline in headline CPI, so still too early there. The labor market remains tight, and an expected growth slowdown is only likely to materialize in the coming months. Nevertheless, the bank is likely to eventually signal a pause in the rate-hiking cycle, which we think will come at that October meeting alongside updated forecasts. The messaging around a pause is likely to emphasize that more hiking could be coming, and that they do not envision any rate cuts in the horizon. So, policy rate to remain restrictive. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Michael uh, to discuss oil.
3: Hi, everyone. Uh, good morning. So, look, I'll say that oil prices clearly been very, very volatile in both directions this summer. And liquidity and positioning, we think, have been really big drivers of this volatility. So a few quick thoughts here. Now, if you look over the summer, so since June, spot WTI contract volumes have been trading at a mere 57% of seasonally normal levels seen over the course of the past five years. So in other words, liquidity is about 43% below normal so far this summer. The other point is that the recent two-month slide in oil prices has really been met with the sharpest collapse in positioning for the investor long to short ratio since the 2018 attack on Abqaiq in Saudi, uh, in Saudi Arabia when oil prices came off after that spike. So an incredible amount of length has come out of this oil market in a very short period of time. Now. The macro pressure that we've seen in terms of selling on recession fears was effectively done into a liquidity gap over the summer, really, uh, hence amplifying the recent oil price weakness in the financial market. Uh, I will say that commodity hedge funds, trading houses, energy specialists still remain quite constructive on the fundamental backdrop. Uh, but there's been an incredible amount of volatility. Uh, we're still holding in the mid-90s for WTI, even though liquidity is thin. Um, but away from the short-term noise here, I'll say that the structural multi-year constructive oil thesis does remain intact, uh, particularly when you look uh, through the winter and beyond. So call it three months from here and beyond. But over the very near term, I think that we'll just continue to see very choppy trading. And uh, the market is very much in search of near-term upside catalysts. And the top of trading so far over the course of the summer, I think, is very fair. I mean, the five biggest needle-moving catalysts for the oil market right now are all policy-driven. So when you think about things like the Saudi put option or the OPEC, potentially um, the threat to take barrels off the market, of course, is bullish. You think about the potential for an Iran deal, that's bearish. Uh, Russian barrels rolling over. That, of course, is bullish with December 5th in focus when the EU embargo comes into play. Um, things like Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And then, of, of course, the resumption of Chinese demand uh, also is bullish. But when you think about these five drivers, all of these are policy-related. And really, despite having various different odds of coming to fruition – and of course, timing matters for all of these things, they all have uh, quite asymmetric outcomes. So, I'll just unpack uh, just a couple of these um, over the next minute or so. Uh, Number one is when you look back two weeks ago, uh, the Saudis put a floor into this oil market by saying that there's a disconnect between the physical and the financial market. Um, You know, they they suggested that they could potentially tighten the market by taking barrels off uh, if the market gets looser. And this, this shook a lot of the shorts out of the market. And so when, uh, ABS wants $100 a barrel oil, you've seen that Brent price have, of, of course, you know, moved right up to $100 a barrel and basically been pinned to that price point for the course of the past two weeks. Um, on strategic petroleum reserves, the U.S. now has sold 155 million out of the 180 million, uh, that they vowed to sell. Uh, so we have another 25 million barrels that we need to sell. Uh, originally supposed to be wrapping up in, in October. Uh, we think that this SPR sale is going to drag into November, but you're going to be done. You're going to be done after that. Uh, the other point I'll make here is is a lot of people talking about the likelihood of an Iran deal. Uh, we still think from a house view that the odds are quite low. The sticking point here is the same as it's always been. Uh, The Iranians are looking for assurance that whatever deal that they do with the Biden camp, uh, that will get grandfathered through to whoever is in the White House next, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. So recall, Obama did the original uh, Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, Trump came in shortly after and ripped up the deal, and now Biden is trying to put the pieces back together again. So this is a very logical ask from the Iranians but it is a promise that Biden can't make. Now, even if the deal is done, barrels hitting the market is likely a 2023 story at best. You know, you need time for certification, you need time for a congressional review, etc. Uh, this is a low likelihood but high impact uh, occurrence. Um, the second last point I'll make is, is on China, and the entire oil market is waiting for this one. I'll say that the, the Chinese oil metrics have been just truly atrocious lately. And remember, China's historically been the world's largest oil demand growth center, but when you look at refinery runs, uh, which is you know another way of saying crude demand, demand has not been this low since the early days of the pand- pandemic. And then when you look at Chinese crude imports, they've recently hit the lowest since 2018. Now, this of course is not specific to energy markets, given China's zero COVID policy, but. The data just continues uh, to trend worse. Now, I'll wrap with a few bullish indicators. Uh, Number one is crack spreads just continue to price at economically attractive levels for refiners to continue to run hard. This is particularly the diesel crack is very strong all across the world. Uh, When I talk about refineries running hard, that's a fancy way of saying crude demand will remain strong. Uh, I will also say that refined product tanker rates continue to be very robust. And this is a clear sign that demand destruction is not as bad as the market may have feared, given that people are still bidding up the transport needed to get access to that fuel. And lastly, when I say that Chinese demand is, is has been very weak for obvious reasons, there's other countries that are similar to China, that are are punching in at near record high demand, and India is really in focus there. But uh, with that, why don't I wrap there and pass it back to Simon.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, We'll finish up now with Elsa on FX.
4: Thanks, Simon. So I'll keep my comments very brief. And a couple of implications from the comments made before by Peter, Blake, Simon, and Michael. Um, First, for currencies more generally, As we think about central banks trying to keep up with uh, the pace of tightening and the ECB, we've heard a lot of more hawkish rhetoric. It's important to note that there are still quite large differences between the absolute level of rates in, say, the euro area against the US and Canada, and that for all the global forces at play, we have ended up in a situation where carry is actually coming back to matter within G10. When you talk about rates getting to 3.5%, say, in Canada with the risk that they end up higher, um, versus the euro area where, with all the best will in the world, the ECB is likely to be probably 200 basis points below that. The other factor to mention is the longer-term crude outlook just uh, mentioned by Michael. And that really points to a constructive environment for CAD, not necessarily against the U.S. dollar, but certainly on the crosses. If we tie that in with some positioning metrics that we look at, the market is generally very long US dollars against a broad range of currencies, but you can't really see any material differences between say dollar CAD and the likes of dollar stocky or Aussie dollar, Kiwi dollar, and even cable um, and Euro dollar that we love to hate. do have more crowded short positioning, but certainly not extreme by any means. So we do see some potential for card out performance on the crosses, particularly over a longer-term horizon, bearing in mind the comments made by Simon with the Bank of Canada looking to get ahead of the curve on inflation and keep rates in restricted territory.
0: This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.